Were you doing Baby Shark as well? Of course. You were, okay. I would love to see George Will do Baby Shark. That <laughs> so would this be is for a single. Oh, okay. This is for a double. Right. Okay, yeah, anyway. Home ride. We got it. Game time with Boomer Esiason. This week's guest is Pulitzer Prize winning columnist and baseball's bard, George Will. Presented by GEICO. Today's guest is a Pulitzer Prize winning political columnist, television commentator, and author whose current bestseller is entitled The Conservative Sensibility. Now, he's also famously a Chicago Cubs fanatic whose books about baseball include the classic Men at Work. And it's my pleasure to welcome a man who says I'd rather talk about baseball than anything else, the one and only George Will. George, welcome to Game Time. Glad to be with you. I've published 15 books. Men at Work has sold more than the other 14 combined. I, I know it has. <laughs> and, it's, and it really speaks to your love of baseball and the craft of baseball and the fact that we all know that you're a Cubs fan. Now, the interesting thing for me is you grew up in Champaign, Illinois. You could have been a Cardinals fan or you could have been a Cubs fan. Why the Cubs? Well, at an age too tender to make life-shaping decisions, I picked the Cubs, partly because I didn't like the Cardinal broadcaster, who's named Harry Carey, yes. who then followed me to Wrigley Field. All my friends became Cardinal fans and grew up cheerful and liberal. <laughs> and I, be I became a Gloomy Cub fan. For some reason, you still had the love of the game. Yep. And where did that all come from? I can't remember life without it. Baseball was in the air, literally. It was a radio sport. I'm 78 years old, so in the late 40s, I was listening to it. There were two teams in St. Louis, Browns and Cardinals, two in Chicago. With your the new magic of the transistor radio <laughs> in the 50s, I could pick up KDKA in Pittsburgh and elsewhere. So it, it just saturated my life. And thinking about uh, your childhood, I would imagine, much like my childhood, I spent a lot of time at Shea Stadium. I'm assuming that you spent a lot of time at Wrigley Field? I didn't, because we were 125 miles away, but... Birthdays, maybe? Birthday was always go to Wrigley Field on a Sunday and see a doubleheader, which was standard in those Right. Days. So doubleheaders means two losses for the Cubs, maybe? <laughs> you always get to see the bottom <laughs> of the ninth if you're a Cub fan at Wrigley Field. You know, the Cubs do have a history, and Cub fans have a history of being miserable. Are you miserable? No. We're still basking in the glow of 2016. I was never one of those who thought they were lovable losers. I don't think anything was lovable about putting a mediocre product on the field for years, which they did until they got an owner, right. Tom Ricketts and the Ricketts family, that cared. Every team is the fabric of the community in which they play. And the Cubs probably none more than any other team in the league that really reflected Chicago, yes. right? I mean, that was the beloved team. It wasn't the White Sox, it was the Cubs. Right. And that's one of the reasons why I think Cub fans probably are so frustrated over the futility over the years because they never left that kind of small-minded mindset. And the Cubs would periodically torture them <laughs> as of with, in 1969. Well, I was going to get to that. So in 1969, I was eight years old. I believe you were probably somewhere around 26, 27. 27. So you were really understanding what yeah. the Cubs were, and you thought this was going to be a magical season for you guys. And then, of course, we have the Black Cat issue at Shea Stadium. And you talk about, you know, omens. For us, it was a good omen. For you guys, unfortunately, you collapsed which made for the Miracle Mets and an amazing story here in New York. Well, the June swoon that the Cubs usually have came in August and September that year when their manager, uh, Leo DeRocher, decided to take a vacation in the middle of the season. <laughs> I mean, only in Cubdom right. this sort of thing happened. 
You should have actually had a sports talk show at that time because I'm sure there would have been a lot of things that you'd like oh to my. get off your chest. Yes. You know, the, the interesting thing about the Mets and the Cubs, and I think back to 69, as I was eight years old and I knew my dad was a National League fan, did not like the Yankees, did not like the American League, always wanted to be a part of the decision-making of the manager. And there is a distinct you know, uh, distinction between the American League manager and the National League manager, which is something that I would think that you would appreciate. Absolutely. When Lou Pinella has managed in both leagues, and he right. says it's incomparably more difficult to manage in the National League, most crucial decision usually that a manager makes during a game is when to take a pitcher out. Mm -hmm. With the designated hitter, it's often not required that you right. take him out, but you have to sacrifice a good starting pitcher to get some offense. Much more interesting game than National League. Oh, you wrote this book, Men at Work. We're going to get into that. And I think it's a terrific look at some really special people in baseball and the craft of baseball, which is truly what we're talking about here because managing in the National League is all about the craft of baseball. All right, I'm here with the world's biggest Chicago Cubs fan, George Will, who wrote in 1998, real Cub fans are 99.44% scar tissue. I'm not really sure what that means, but what about today? Now that the Cubs have won the 2016 World Series and are now perennial contenders, you have a new manager, David Ross. Is that a good idea or a bad idea for, for a former beloved teammate to become now the new manager? Well, it, it takes a rash person to second-guess Tom Ricketts and, mm -hmm. and uh, Theo Epstein, but it does look a little bit sentimental, and sentiment in baseball will get you a third place. Uh, that uh, for a guy to manage his former teammates, some yeah. of whom are still there, strikes me as difficult. You know, it always seems like this team underachieved the last couple of years, uh, especially under Joe Madden, who did things a little bit differently. I would, I would imagine that David Ross is going to have his own style, but do you know what kind of style it is? Can I don't. You tell? Uh, the British have an expression, horses for courses, yeah. different horses, different courses, different managers for different teams at different stages in the evolution of the team. So I don't know, but uh, uh, I think it's problematic. You know, so we're talking about today's baseball. David Ross gets hired in Chicago here in New York. I feel the same way about my team. And I'm wondering, why didn't they just hire Joe Girardi, one of these two teams? Good question. Uh, I, the, the Mets seem to me, I don't understand their decision-making. I'm being polite here. And I think the word in baseball these days is collaboration, that the front office wants a manager, and Brody Van Wagenen, the, the general manager of the Mets, said it. I want to be able to exhale when I walk into the manager's office, not inhale. I'm not really sure what that means, but I think he just wants somebody in there that's going to be welcoming of the front office. And I would imagine David Ross is going to be the same way. Well, the hardest number in a sport just full of numbers for baseball fans to comprehend is 162. 162 games in 183 days, it's too many. I'm for going back to 154 right. games. But to keep 25 people happy and playing and ready to play when they come to the ballpark every day, that's half the manager's job. The other half now is to handle what baseball calls analytics. That's a fancy word for information. Mm -hmm. And the information's coming from 26-year-olds who majored in computer science at Princeton and, and peaked in Little League at age 12 right. to collaborate between the baseball guys and the, the Princetonians and guys from Amherst, et cetera. 
That's a difficulty. For me, when, when I think about your book, okay, Men at Work and the people that you followed, okay, let's take, a, let's take uh, Cal Ripken, for instance. You know, back then, he did not have an assistant coach or somebody from Princeton or Amherst or wherever they may be telling him where to line up on the field to play, depending on who was in the batter's yeah. box. He did that himself, right? And you now see guys in the outfield, they've got a little card in their cap, or they've got, as your quarterbacks have. Uh, I never had on, one of those things. All right, okay. something on these, their are, these other guys do now, yes. Yeah. Well, what we've now got, if I were writing Men at Work today, it wouldn't be nearly as interesting. Right. Because it's a game of three true outcomes, as they say, walk, strike out, home run. Those three outcomes have three things in common. The ball's not put in play. Now, look, we have these phenomenally athletic players now. Baez, Lindor. Chapman, Arenado. Trout. We, try, we want to see them catch the ball. Baseball players spend a lot more time with leather on their hands than wood in their hands. <laughs> Put the ball in play and let's, let's see how exciting it can be. You know, I love that perspective, but when you think about, you know, the analytics, the aspect of it, it, it doesn't really go back to the craft of the game. Is there a player today that you can really look at and say, well, I mean, I wish I could follow that guy because of the way that he carries himself? Bios. Really? Baez has the best baseball instincts, perhaps, of anyone playing nowadays. And Trout, of course. I mean, Trout's in a different league. Sure. But both players seem to be a separate above everybody else. Yeah. Well, you love Baez anyway. It doesn't matter to me because, you know, he's like got to be one of your favorite players right Absolutely. now, right? Absolutely. How about pitching? Is there a pitcher like a Jacob deGrom or a Max Scherzer or a Justin Verlander that, or even a Clayton Kershaw for that matter? You've named two of them. Verlander, I think, and... Uh, uh, Scherzer. George Will's Men at Work, The Craft of Baseball was number one on the New York Times nonfiction bestseller list for nine consecutive weeks back in 1990. And it is really a great book because you follow some of the great baseball names and they, how they worked at their craft of baseball. And one of the interesting names on the list was Tony La Russa. Um, and you followed him and you saw how he managed. And I'm just wondering if today he could do what he was doing back then in today's game the way that they're running it. Well, I wouldn't want to be the 28-year-old from Amherst who called down to Tony Roos <laughs> and said, here's what you're going to do today. He just said, buy a ticket and sit in the stands and I'll take care of what's going on on the field. It's, it, he would have, I think, a difficult time relating to people who want to manage the manager. You also covered Ricky Henderson, who I love watching as a baseball player because he made so many things happen in a game whether it be out in the field of being a gold glover or getting to first base in any way possible, and then how he impacted the entire game, most notably the pitcher that was on the mound. In basketball, a guard with a hot hand can take over a game. A quarterback can take over a football game. You can't take over a baseball game except Ricky Henderson. Tie game, bottom of the ninth. He comes to the plate. His strike zone's the size of postage right. stamp. Tiptoes to first base, steals second, goes to third on a ground ball, Scores on a sack fly, game's over. Right. And he did it all by himself. You know, baseball fans are always picking their all-time nine. Mm -hmm. Bench, Gehrig, Morgan, etc. Aaron, Willie Mays. If you're going to play a game with this nine, your left fielder is Ricky Henderson. Yeah. The guy who led off a game 88 times in his career, started the game with a home run. What kind of personality was he to follow? Highlight of my life was getting hugged by Ricky Henderson a few <laughs> years ago at spring training. <laughs> really? Oh, he... He could play today. I mean, he, he's bigger than you think. He could have been a great football player. He had offers. He loved the game. He once called the late Kevin Towers when right. Towers was the general manager of the Padres. 
and he left a message on the phone. He says, KT, this is Ricky. Ricky wants to play baseball. <laughs> that was Ricky. Wants to play baseball. I, I love the way when Ricky talked about himself in this the third person third because person. like a whole other person out of the exactly. baseball field. Uh, talking about the craft of a particular player, how about Cal Ripken at shortstop? Well, he, everyone knew. One of those things that everyone knew he was too big to play shortstop. Six so five. they say. Yeah, he's about your My size. My size, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Except if you're smart enough, you know where to go. And if your pitcher can execute the pitches he's going to throw, you just, on every play you move. Now, of course, when you move, you're giving the information to the batter. He says, what's Ripken thinking? Because right. he just saw him move. That's the inside game of baseball. That's why I wrote Men at Work. No one had written it for me. I wanted to know what was going on out there. And it turns out it's rather a lot. And how about, how about in the batter's box? That's the interesting thing, how the batter would actually try to steal a sign or two or yeah. would adjust the way that they would stand in the box if they wanted to hit a ball a certain way. And you can read that. You can read the feet. Uh, uh, Mike Sosha, when he was a catcher with the Dodgers, used to watch the other team's batting practice. If a hitter was wanted to pitcher to throw a breaking ball, mm. where he'd put his feet, and he'd know. It's amazing. Baseball is a game of nuance. You know, perhaps the most profound thing any of George Will's subjects in Men at Work told him was pretty something simple, and that was said by Tony La Russa, if you take care of the small problems, you won't have the big problems. And I think you pointed that out, just how Tony was and how relentless he was as a leader and how detailed he was. Yeah. Well, that's exactly the, the story of baseball. You can stand around waiting for two guys to get on base and get Godzilla to the plate and hit it into the next county, or you can manufacture runs. Now, tell me about Tony Gwynn, because he manufactured a lot of runs, a lot of hits, and will be remembered ever, forever, I think, as one of the great hitters in baseball history. I went to see him early on. I was writing the book, and it was early in, I think, the 89 season. And he'd started off, he'd hit two home runs. And I said, how are you doing, Tony? He says, I'm scuffling. That's terrible. I said, Tony, you hit two home runs. He said, that's not what I do. Mm. And he was right. He hit the ball through what they call in San Diego the 5.5 hole. The space, he's left-handed hitter, space between shortstop and third base. Imagine trying to ha devise a shift. There's no way. There's no way. Not. Right. Like Rod, Rod Carew. That's my aim is to get baseball back to where Rod Carews and Wade Boggs and Tony Gwynn's can do what they did. Now, interestingly enough, you told me off-air that you are a season ticket holder to the Washington Nationals. Oh, yes. You have six season ticket holders. Yes. You live in Washington, D.C. You love baseball so much. Uh, even your son works for the Nationals as well, right? In the clubhouse. That's right. He works in the clubhouse. And guess what? He's going to get a World Series ring. <laughs> you're going to have a World Series ring in your family. You know that, right? I am unworthy. Yeah, you're not worthy, but he is. I can tell you, they will take good care of him. I mean, they came out of nowhere. They almost had like the reverse of your 69 Cubs. It was the reverse for them. They, they straightened their season out and, and took it all the way to the World Series. They started 19 and 31, and all the talk was firing manager Davey Martinez and breaking up the team. Well, Davey Martinez, who in my judgment should be manager of the year, uh, said, no, this is every day go 1-0. That was his motto. Just go on and out. And they turned it around, had one of the great runs in baseball history, if you look over a 100-game span. And uh, again, that's a manager managing the chemistry, managing the human relationships. Have guys like Howie Kendrick, mm -hmm. probably the MVP. Rendon could be the when, MVP. When they brought Howie Kendrick in, yeah. he kind of changed things around. Were you doing Baby Shark as well? Of course. You were, okay. I would love to see George Will do Baby Shark. That <laughs> so would this is for a single. Oh, okay. This is for a double. Right. Okay, yeah, for anyway. the home run. We got it. Yeah, so you're very, well, 
he was definitely a, cha a game changer when he got there. And right. it seemed like everything all of a sudden got to be fun again. And uh, just solid professional baseball players. Ryan Zimmerman, Howie Kendrick. I mean, Kendrick got the biggest home run probably in, in Nats history, the Grand Slam in Dodger Stadium. Do you like free agency in baseball? Is it I a do. good thing? I do. I think it's made... A, I think it's a basic human right, right to be able to negotiate the terms of employment with the employer of your choice within certain parameters to keep competitive balance. When free agency came in, all the owners were unanimously wrong. They said it means it's going to be the end of competitive balance because all the rich teams will gather up all the good players. Mm -hmm. They neglected one fact. You can only have nine on the field at one time. True. So you're not going to be able to got one good third baseman, someone else is going to have some other good third baseman. I think even more amazing the success that the Tampa Bay Rays have had, right? Given the amount of money that they spend on their team, there are some teams that have players, two players that make as much money as the entire roster of the Rays have. Necessity is the mother of invention, and they've figured out how to do more with less. And you see the A's getting into the postseason regularly, the Rays getting in regularly. Money is good, but money can't o overcome stupidity, and you've got some dumb decisions being made. Yes. <laughs> and money, intelligence can compensate for money. Uh, I'm a Nick fan, and I can confirm that. <laughs> While speaking of our world being in flux during a recent interview about his book, The Conservative Sensibility, George Will stated, I believe that change is the only constant. Does that also apply in baseball, you think? Absolutely. It, people say baseball needs to change. Try and stop it. Baseball is always changing. The commissioner is, has a wonderful statistic. Game 7, 1960s World Series, arguably the greatest game ever played. 10-9, to 9, Pirates beat the Yankees on Mazarowski's walk-off home run. You know how many strikeouts there were in that game? How many? Zero. No one struck out. One pitcher was 5-6 and another was 5-8. Bobby Shantz and Elroy Face. Different world, different game. It's always changing. So, but you and I, I would consider the way I hear you talk are baseball purists. Yes. Right? We do not like the DH. We do not. Thank you. Uh, you like the pitcher hitting. You like the National League decision making. That's your Cubs fan, so yes. you can understand the pressure that is on the managers in the National League, right? Yes. Do you like Rob Manford's, the commissioner of baseball? Do you like his new edict about time and trying to speed the game up and all Absolutely. these different things? The best thing, one single thing, and it's so simple, right. that baseball could do to please its fans, move the game along, is when a batter gets in the batter's box, he has to stay there, enforce the rule. John Miller, the great broadcaster, recently watched a kinescope of, I think it was game seven of the 53 World Series, high-tension game. He said not once did a batter step out of the batter's box having stepped into it. That would speed the game up. Pitchers would pitch faster. Defense would be better. Defense is always better when the pitcher's working fast. At least he's trying to do that limit mound Absolutely. visits and things of that nature. But, you know, but today's players have to fix their batting gloves. They've got to make sure they look good. batting gloves. Yes. Uh, it's Man like, batting gloves. Ted Williams never used them. Musial never used them. Cobb, Horns, Hornsby, Hannes Wagner, none of them did until Hawk Harrelson <laughs> went out and played golf one day about, and not thinking he'd be in the lineup that right. night, was in the lineup, said, my hands are sore, and he wore the gloves. 
And that's and where that's, it all started. <laughs> baseball began to go downhill. Oh, that's amazing. You know, I, I love the fact that you're a baseball fan. I wish I could talk politics with you, but you told me I wasn't allowed on this particular interview. Maybe we'll do it on your show or one of your shows one of these days. Sure. I would love to do it. It's a pleasure to meet you, and I thank you so much for loving baseball as much as you I do. I enjoyed it. Thanks for having me. All right. Our thanks to George Will for joining us today and to all of you for watching on Boomer Science, and I'll see you again right here on Game Time. That wasn't my fault. That was their fault. I know when I make a mistake. I did not make a mistake. <laughs> and like a true quarterback, I'm blaming somebody else. It's the coach's fault.